0: Thank you, preacher. Okay, Colossians. The book of Colossians, chapter number one. Just want to say thank you to everybody. I know there are many of you who have been faithful to every service. Can I see your hands, everybody? that have been every service from service one all the way. And wow, that's tremendous. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, to your local church, first of all, but uh, to the meetings, and it certainly is a wonderful blessing to be able to be here again at Ocala, at at the school, as well as Central Baptist Church, always a blessing, and appreciate so much your pastor, enjoy the fellowship, the conversations, and uh, it's always good when you agree about a lot of stuff, okay, so we talk about Calvinism, we're right down the line, okay, so a lot of, it's always a a blessing to uh, be with the different men in the the Lord's work that... uh, We have a similar heartbeat, and I thank God for it. So it's certainly been a blessing to be here. Thank you for being faithful and also for your prayers. We have one more chapel tomorrow morning, and I believe um, uh, just uh, what God's doing, I believe tomorrow could be very, very important. Would you join us? Is it 9.30, I believe, brother? Somebody told me 9.30. You pray for us tomorrow morning. And that chapel, if you just set your alarm, pray for us about five minutes, that the devil will be pushed out of this place and that God will have complete liberty to do all he wants to do. I'd appreciate it very much. Uh, prayer, I believe, as we talked about last night, is a battle. And it's part of the battle. And we certainly would appreciate you joining us for that one final chapel. You can also, of course, they'll be having a, a service in just a few minutes. hope you'll pay attention, but you can lift a prayer up for Brother Pound. He'll be preaching, I'm sure, in just a few minutes, a few minutes or so. But uh, great to be here and uh, certainly tonight. Um, this message uh, goes along with Sunday night's message. Remember on Sunday night, we dealt with legalism. I want to ask you again to say it, but legalism versus license, okay? It's a long time ago. I said, preacher, there's been a lot of preaching since then. Hopefully you remember enough about it. Uh, But we didn't really develop that center aisle. We talked about over here is flesh dependence, over here is flesh indulgence, and right here in the center aisle is God dependence. So I want to spend a whole message on what does that look like. And so I'm going to preach a message I've entitled, God's theological continental divide. God's theological continental divide. How many have ever passed the western United States continental divide? I us your hands, please. On interstate 70, maybe interstate 80. Um, some of the uh, routes, uh, you're going along usually a long road up, about eight, nine miles, coming up that the hill. If you're towing an RV, you know you're going uphill. All you RV tourers know that. And you're going up that hill, and that have to kind of downshift a little bit. And so I've got a standard, so I've got to downshift. And, and I get up to the top, and right there at the top, there's a big, huge sign. It says, United States, Western Continental Divide. Now, you know what that means, don't you? If a raindrop falls on the western side of that continental divide, it ends up in the Pacific Ocean. If it falls on the eastern side of the continental divide, it ends up in the Gulf of Mexico, not too far from here. Well, that's a big difference, wouldn't you say? Just a few inches makes an enormous difference in its destination. Did you know that there's a theological divide in the Bible? Now, we're going to get to our text in a moment, but I'm going kind of introducing it so you'll understand why I've chosen the verse that I've chosen. But there's a theological divide in the Bible. Now, all of us know, I would assume most of us know, if not all of us, that there's a theological divide in salvation. If you fall on the correct side of the divide, you end up sins forgiven on your way to heaven. If you end up on the wrong side of the divide, you end up lost and spending an eternity without Jesus in a place called hell. There could be no greater contrast in all the universe. There's a huge theological divide. And which side you fall on, of course, determines your destination. Now, that's not what I'm preaching on tonight, though it is certainly a very important analogy. I'd like to preach on the continental divide in sanctification. You fall on the right side of the divide, you'll end up with a lot of answers to prayer, a lot of blessing, a lot of optimism, a lot of excitement about the Christian life, and a lot of blessing in your life, and a lot of a lot of power. If you fall on the wrong side of the continental divide, you're pretty pessimistic about the Christian life, a lot of discouragement, a lot of defeat, not a lot of answers to prayer, and that sounds pretty important, doesn't it? See, a few inches can make a huge difference. So it's important for us to understand it. Now let's read the text, and then we'll continue to introduce what we're talking about. Look at verse 29 of Colossians chapter 1. Whereunto I also labor. Okay, what's he laboring about? Okay, he's laboring because he wants people to be mature in Jesus Christ, complete, perfect in Jesus Christ. And and the key to that is Christ living in them, if you look back two verses. So he says, this wonderful truth I'm laboring. He says, whereunto I also labor. Now here it is. Striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. Several years ago, I was in the state of Wyoming, and I think it was a Wednesday. I could be wrong about that. Could have been a Tuesday. But middle of the week, I preached the message along these lines, and I finished the message, and I walked out in the lobby, and a young lady came up to me, I am guessing, was probably in her uh, maybe early 20s. She said, Brother Van Gelderen, she said, I have grown up in Baptist church all my life. I have never heard what you preached tonight. Now, sometimes you don't know how to take that. And uh, she said, I grew up at, and she named it Independent Baptist Church. If you know anything about the Independent Baptist Church movement, you would have recognized the name. It was a very significant Independent Baptist Church. She said, I grew up at such such a church. She said, a year ago, I came out to this church. She said, I've never heard what you preached on. She said, I always thought the Christian life was 50-50. 50% 50 me and 50% God. So I want to ask you a question. Is that the Christian life? Is it 50-50? Maybe 60-40? Maybe 70-30? 80-20? 90-10? 95-5? See, how much of that, now don't miss this, how much you think of the Christian life as God and how much is you determines which side of the continental divide you fall on. And if you fall on the wrong side of the continental divide, you end up a lot of discouragement, a lot of defeat, a lot of pessimism. So you say, well, preacher, where are you going with this? I mean, Paul says he's striving. He says he's laboring, but he's doing it according to his working. So how much is God and how much is us? Because this is a very important question that must be answered. And if it's not answered, we answer it by default. So you say, well, preacher, what's the answer? Well, let's look at the Bible. Look at verse number six of chapter number two. And God's going to give us a clue in verse six of chapter two. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now, God makes an analogy here with salvation. Okay, in other words, the word received is called the aorist tense, which kind of views the action as a whole. And then the word walk is in the present tense. Okay, now we all know that salvation is, it's, it's how do I put this? It's punctiliar, or it's, it's an event. It's a crisis. It is not a process. Now, conviction may be a process, but when somebody gets saved, we call it the salvation Moment. See, because that's when you get saved. So if he walked up to somebody on the street and said, "When you get, uh, are you saved? Yeah, I'm saved. when did you get saved? 1981 to 1985. You'd be a little, what's going on? Because it did not take you four years to get saved. See. So, uh, so we understand that salvation is as a reception. It's a moment in time. It's you're lost, you're hell bound. You trust Jesus to do what you could not never do, and the moment you did. You received by expectation, you expected Jesus to do what he said he would do. And he saved you. Okay, so reception. So the Bible says there's something that occurs in the salvation moment, as you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Okay, could we put it this way? There's something that occurs in the salvation moment that needs to be duplicated in every step of your Christian life. Now, I got a question for you, so, so we can learn about the Christian life by learning about salvation. So here's the question. When you got saved, how much of the saving did Jesus do? And how much of the saving did you do? Could we say that salvation is 0-100? Yeah, we could say it's 0-100. It's completely trusting Jesus to do everything you can never do. So here's my point. If salvation 0-100, so is the Christian walk. You say, now wait a second, preacher. I mean, you just read Paul said he's laboring, he's striving. It's very important for us to understand what we're talking about is not passivity. It's his activity. I can do all things through Christ. Oh, which strengtheneth me. Okay, so let's just uh, do a little uh, thinking here, and maybe this will help. Again, just trying to help us put it all together. Okay, I'll give you another little story that kind of puts us down the down the road. I was preaching at a camp just to the east of L.A. Anybody flown into L.A., you'll know they've got the Pacific Ocean. you got L.A., then you got some mountains, of course, to the north, San Bernardino Mountains, then you've got some mountains, then you got the desert. And I was right there in those mountains, beautiful little mountain, there's a little camp there, about 150 kids. And one night, a dear young pastor from L.A., Uh, was up, and they said, why don't you give a testimony? So he got up, and um, he said something those teenagers I really disagreed with. I mean, really, not just a little bit. I really disagreed with them. And so here's what he said. He said, now, young people, I know the Christian life's hard. I know the Christian life's difficult. Now, I don't know about you. I just don't believe that. I do not believe it. So the next night, I felt like this has got to be corrected because it's going to hurt these kids. And I don't want to embarrass this guy. He meant well. He was just sincere but sincerely wrong. And so uh, I, on the next night while I was preaching, I said, now listen to me, young people. The Christian life's not hard. The Christian life's not difficult. It's impossible. <laughs> it. See, here's the point, friends. If you think the Christian life's hard and difficult, what's the answer? Try harder. But do you know that try harder doesn't work? See, it's like, have you ever heard of that thing? Hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Have you ever thought about how foolish that is? If we brought the strongest guy in the room up here, had him grab his shoelaces, we could cheer for him all night long. He's not pulling himself up. You ever heard of the law of gravity? See, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Now, here's the thing I love about the Christian life. It's not hard. It's not difficult. And this is liberating. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible, which means all of us need divine intervention. Amen. Isn't that good? good? See, salvation's not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. You can't save yourself. Amen. No. That's why you had to trust Jesus to do all of it. Okay, so so hope you're starting to kind of gather with me. Now, let me help you out with this. Maybe you could, I'm going to ask some questions and you answer. Uh, how much of the Bible can you be spiritually impacted by without the Holy Spirit? Oh. How much effective praying can you do without the Holy Spirit? Oh. How many people can you win to Jesus without the Holy Spirit? Okay, how many, uh, how many other Christians can you spiritually edify without the Holy Spirit? How much true victory can you have? Now, I've got to explain this. There is something called false victory. It's like the dear lady comes up to the pastor and says, Now, pastor, you'd have been so proud of me. My husband punched my buttons. He pulled my lever. The lava started to go up. And I thought of a million sarcastic things I could have said to him. You'd have been so proud of me, preacher. I just clenched my teeth and I didn't say anything. I had victory. Well, certainly that's better than grievous words which stir up anger. I'll give you that. But that's not true victory. You know what true victory is? Your husband hits your buttons, pulls your lever, and you don't want to say anything you shouldn't. You say, Preacher, that's impossible. That was my point. Hmm. So how much true victory can you have without the Holy Spirit? None. You see, the thing I love about the Bible is everything God is asking us to do is not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. So that helps us a little bit. Now, let me give you another thought here. Just going to give you some thoughts, and we'll see where this all goes. Let's imagine you're witnessing to your next-door neighbor, and you say to your next-door neighbor, um, I, uh, I give them the gospel, and the, and the, and the person says to you, the next-door neighbor says, well, you know, preacher, I'm, I, 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 I'm going to trust Jesus to save me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try as hard as I can to get to heaven, and maybe I can do 5 or 10%. I'm going to trust Jesus to do the rest. Will that work? No. You know what? that alarms us when we think about salvation but that's exactly how we live in the Christian life Lord help us. okay God okay I know I can't do much but I'm gonna try as hard as I can I'll do the best I can and I'll trust you to do the rest now let me give you another analogy I'm just trying to get you to think here uh, let's imagine I was preaching at a uh, at a youth camp or maybe like oh the war here tonight bunch of unsaved kids and and uh, let's just imagine I got up and I started preaching and I preached on sin. You're saying, go get them, preacher. Let those kids have it. And I start preaching on hell. You're saying, okay, preacher, that's it, great. And then I close the meeting and walk out the door. What would the average kid who's under conviction of a sin, realize I'm going straight to hell, what would be his reaction to that message? I'll tell you what it'd be. Oh, man, I got to stop sinning. I got to start doing better. Is that the answer? No. Now hear me. Not only is it not the answer, it does damage to the right answer. See, itself self in its focus. Now, here's what we've done. And I'm talking as a bigger movement. I'm talking about, okay, here's a bunch of kids at camp, all saved on the way to heaven. Preacher gets up, rips about sin, rips about consequences of sin. Sin will mess you up. The end there runs all the way. We're the cheering them on, and he closes the meeting. And what's the average kid under conviction going to think? Oh, man, i got to do better. i got to do better. Is that the answer? Hang on, I'll tell you. It's not only not the answer, it does damage to the right answer. Self, any measure of self-dependence puts you on the wrong side of the continental divide. You see that? Amen. Now, we still got a few questions, so we're going to answer them here because we want to parse this thing very important. because uh, I'm, I'm actually trying to jar you a little bit to get you thinking, but we're, don't worry, we're going to fall on this thing right. Now, here's another thought I want you to get. Okay, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, it tells us, uh, that's that famous passage where G, uh, he, Paul prays three times for the thorn to be taken away, and Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for them." Now, here's that phrase you know. My strength, help me out now, is made perfect in weakness. The word weakness is the word strength in the Greek language with an alpha. Now, it's really not hard to get this because we use this in English. When you put an A before a word, what happens? You negate the word. For instance, a theist. A theist is somebody who believes in? Yeah, somebody, not necessarily say, but they believe in a deity. Okay, if you put an A before the word theist, change the definition at all? Yeah, an atheist. So how much does an atheist believe in God? I'm talking dictionary now. How much? None at all. So I like what one commentator said about that word weakness. It's weakness in the sense of strengthless. Can I put it this way, friends? Do you know how much spiritual strength you and I have in this room without Jesus? Do you know how much spiritual strength you have? And the answer is, you don't have any. Isn't that exciting? To me, it is extremely exciting. Because how did Paul respond to that? When Jesus said, my strength is made perfect in your complete absence of strength, is what he's saying, in your weakness. He said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in mine infirmities. Did you know that's the same word, weakness? Except in the plural. I will glory in my strengthlessnesses. That's the idea of the infirmities there. My strengthlessnesses. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, it's like this. I could call this message, Embrace Your Bankruptcy. In other words, when... God come along and said, Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know what Paul did? I'm using a little sanctified imagination. He took off his sandals. He started heaving them there and said, hallelujah, I'm weak. Hallelujah, I don't have any strength. Hallelujah, uh, in and of myself, I am absolutely bankrupt of strength. Hallelujah. See, because that's where it begins. That's the right side. In other words, 0100 is how the Christian life works. Now, notice what it says. You say, well, preacher, it says, uh, uh, you know, I'm laboring, striving. Okay, so very clearly Paul's laboring and striving. So how do, you, how do you mix that in theologically to pull it all together? He's doing it according to his working, which works in me mightily. And this helps us understand verses like we just mentioned, I can do all things through which? So whose strength is it? So what did you just say here? My strength, Jesus' strength is made perfect in my weakness, the complete lack of strength. Okay. Or how about this one? Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Okay. So we're seeing this truth. How does it work? Okay. Well, he mentioned we're not talking about inactivity. We're not talking about passivity. So how does this 0100 work? Okay. In the Bible, God gives us pictures, and often a picture in the Bible is extremely helpful in helping us practically understand boots on the ground what does it look like. And one of the favorite pictures I have in the Bible about this 0100 truth is Peter walking on the water. Now, I want to ask you a question about walking on the water. Is it hard or is it difficult? And the answer is, no, it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Especially for Floridians. We Wisconsinites can do it for a couple, of, a couple of months, but that's about it. Okay, but that's not fair. It's frozen. Okay, but the point is, yeah, the liquid stuff, it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Did you know that we have some phenomenal athletes in this country, but they can't walk on water? Did you know that? Amen. Did you know, I know this is going to really, New Englanders in this room, and I'm, I hate to, to, to tell you this, but Tom Brady cannot walk on water. He can deflate footballs, but he cannot walk on water. You know what I'm talking about? Perhaps, yeah, we're telling the truth on the thing now. We're, we're getting down to real it really, uh, really goes, okay? But, you know, there's, there's great athletes. They, they can't walk on water. Did you know you could train for 20 years to walk on water, and you know what? Still couldn't do it after 20 years? Did you know that? Did you know that the Olympics, it's going to shock some of you, the Olympics does not have a walking on water competition. Did you know that? You know why? Because it doesn't matter how much you train. It doesn't matter how much you work. You can't do it. It's impossible. So since it's impossible, that means no human beings have ever done it, right? No wrong. Well, how did that happen? There's two people who've walked on water. Anybody know who they are? Jesus and Peter. Well, you say Jesus, he's son of God. Well, that's true. I don't want to theologically get into the hypostatic union, but I believe that Jesus walked on water like we would in the sense that he had to trust God too. But that's not my point. Okay, but we have somebody else who's a man of like passions. His name is Peter. You know what I love about Peter? He's really human. I mean, really human. In fact, I call Peter the perpetual junior hire. (laughs) You ever notice junior hire's say before they think. In fact, they do before they think. In fact, they don't think. Okay, but the point is, you know, I, I love making fun of junior hires because they have no clue you're making fun of them. even mean, if they're in the room. Okay, but it's just, uh, I tell junior hires, don't worry about sixth grade, your brain goes into mush. About ninth grade, it reforms, and you become a semi-normal person. Okay, but anyway, junior high, we just love it. Okay, that's Peter. I mean, Peter's always saying the wrong thing. He, he speaks up, and you're thinking, why did you say that, Peter? I wonder if even Peter realizes that. So here are Peter in the boat. Now, you have to understand this is the fourth watch of the night, which means it's between 3 and 6 in the morning. There are no lights out in the Sea of Galilee, and it's a big body of water. Seven miles wide, 14 miles tall, and they're in the middle of it, the Bible says in Matthew 14. So here they are out there. Of course, any lights had been taken, any lamps would have been flames. They would have been knocked out a long time ago. They're in a storm. Total darkness. Now, if they see Jesus walking on the water, if it's three to six, it probably was closer to six. And just like, you know, a storm day, of course, it wouldn't, you wouldn't see the sun rising and just be the gray would get a little lighter. And so they could see a little distance. And they see Jesus walking on the water. And the, the Bible says they cried out for fear. They thought it was a spirit, literally the Greek word phantos. They thought it was a phantom. And they see Jesus crying, and the Bible says they cried out for fear, like what one preacher said. Uh, What does that mean, to cry out for fear? It means they scream like junior high girls. But anyway, okay, but uh, uh, that's the idea. Okay, so they cry out for fear. What does Jesus say? Be not afraid. It is I. By the way, if you ever do a study of fear not and be not afraid, you will find that there's always one solution that God gives for fear not and be not afraid, and that is, I'm here. I'm here. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I just like that it's really good be not afraid it is i and then peter peter opens his big mouth lord if it be thou bid me come unto thee on the water now i want to give you a little something that i that i I know you may not think about but it actually is the way it is that very first part is what they call in the greek language a first class condition which simply means the if statement peter assumed to be true So what he was not saying is, you know, that might not be Jesus, might be you, but Jesus, if it is you, no, that's not what he was saying. What he was saying is, Lord, I know it's you. And since I know it is you, bid me come unto thee in the water. And then Jesus said one word. Does anybody know? remember what word he says? Come. Now, when I get to heaven, I want to ask Peter, what was your first thought after Jesus said come? Because my first thought would have been, you big mouth. (laughs) Now what have you got yourself into You know, you have an idea, we all have this idea that it was like, not that this would make any difference, but it's like smooth as glass. You say, well, preacher, wasn't it? No, the flannel glass lady was wrong. It was not smooth as glass, okay. It was heaving up and down and probably waves close to being over his head. And it's, of course, can't be full light. It's just the dawning of the day. I don't know if you've ever been at the ocean at night. It's kind of freaky to me, you know. It just kind of feels weird, you know, or at dawn. It's just, you know, the waves crashing in is a little spooky. And here he is in that ship. Jesus said, come. Now, I'm going to ask you some questions, and I'm going to be honest with you. I am not in any way trying to trick you. So answer them if you can, best you, you, way you can. Now, when Peter got out of the boat, did he use muscles and physical strength? And the answer is, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And don't miss this. When he walked on the water, how much was he depending on that physical strength to walk on the water? And the answer is, not at all. Walking on the water is a picture of 0-100. So here's the Christian life. It's 0% my will, 100% yours zero percent my strength because my all i've got is physical strength i don't have any i don't have spiritual strength so zero percent my strength and a hundred percent dependence on your strength you seeing it now so the idea is when jesus tells you to do something you say preacher i'm just not a good speaker i just can't win anybody to jesus well join the club none of us can win anybody to jesus without jesus years ago there was a pastor who was being interviewed and the deacon said, well, how many people approximately have you led to the Lord without missing a beat? He said, none. They looked at him like that. He said, but I've been there thousands of times when Jesus has. <laughs> See, you get the point there. That preacher understood what I'm trying to get here is that in and of ourselves, we can't do it. Amen. But God does use us. So how does he use us? He uses us when he says, I want you to go talk to your next door neighbor. I want you to give that man a track. I want you to speak a word of witness. And sometimes with trembling voice, we use physical muscles. But if you learn 0100, you're not depending on your physical strength at all. And You know what happens when you obey Jesus and get out of the boat? No, don't miss this. When Peter got out of the boat and began taking steps, not depending on his physical strength to walk on water, Jesus enabled him to do what he could never have done unless Jesus enabled him to do it. Did you get that? So the Christian life is following Jesus, getting out of the boat, and trusting him to enable you to do what you could never do. Amen. And he enables you to do it. Amen. Not with physical strength. Amen. With spiritual strength. Amen. You ever let anybody to the Lord and afterwards you're thinking, where'd that come from? Man, I thought of verses I never thought of. I thought of things I never thought of. Wow, that was amazing. You ever had that happen? In fact, if I had you raise your hand, many of you would say, yeah, that's happened to me. Amen. See, that's what we're talking about. You were walking on water. God was supernaturally enabling you. I tell teenagers about the call to preach because most teenagers say, I can't do that, I can't preach. God does not call the gift that he gives the call. And friends, all of us, when we'll follow Jesus and get out of that boat, that's when he enables us to do what we could never do. We talked last night about prayer. Some of you say, you know, preacher, I've tried to pray. I can't pray more than five minutes, Okay. That's because if you're trying to do it in any dependence on your own strength, you'll never be able to do it. Amen. So the point is, you um, get on your knees, you trust the Lord, and you say, Lord, I, I, need, I need two things. Number one, I need wisdom to know what to pray for, and number two, I need spiritual strength in order to do it. I believe he can do that. Amen. I remember years ago, I was at a Christian school in the state of South Carolina. In our testimony service, a young lady in the Christian school stood to the microphone, and a junior in high school. And she said, you know, she said, I came into this week. And she said, I haven't been getting anything out of my devotions. Nothing. She said, at the beginning of the week, I said, God, would you show me why? She said, yesterday. I think it would have been a Thursday. God showed me why. She said, the problem is, I've been trying to get something out of my devotions. She said, and I realized that I need to trust Jesus to teach me. She said, yesterday I read a chapter, didn't get anything out of it. She said, "Today, I got up, I opened my Bible. But before I started reading my Bible, I said, Jesus, would you teach me? She said, I read the same chapter I read yesterday, didn't get anything yesterday. She began to cry. Tears began to trickle down her cheeks. She said, oh, today God showed me so many things. She was on the wrong side of the continental divide on Thursday. She was on the right side of the continental divide on Friday. See, 595 doesn't work. You see, and I'm afraid many times we live the Christian life with a little bit of self-dependence, and you know what happens? We fail. Self-dependence, I don't care how much measure it is, always sets us up for failure. In fact, I put it to teenagers this way. Failure is God's reminder you cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. And every time you and I fail, I'm convinced God is tapping us on the shoulder and saying, see, don't you get it? You cannot do this without total dependence on me you know what this means friends anybody in this room has now the glorious possibility to fulfill the word of the will of god for your life i'm talking to somebody who has probably led very few people to jesus christ maybe nobody and you've basically thrown it in i don't have the ability to do it and in a certain sense you're right but you know what god's telling you to do get out of the boat and start moving muscles, scared half to death. You know, Paul said he was in fear and trembling. You ever seen that verse in Corinth? But you know, Paul would never seen the Corinthian church established unless he got out of the boat. And he began to follow Jesus. And Jesus enabled him to do what he knew he could never do unless Jesus enabled him to do it. You know, when I was in college, I noticed there's some guys that were just gifted in speaking. You know, the kind of guys that spend five minutes on pulpit speech and get an A, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of them were getting C's and D's and, you know, barely, you know, spending hours. But you know what I found the danger was with giftedness? It's trusting your giftedness. I think some of the guys who've made it, oh, lifelong in preaching are the guys that, how do I could put this? They couldn't have made it unless God intervened. Amen. I don't know about you. I kind of want to be in the place that, I can't do this unless God steps down. (laughs) I can't fake it. I got to have God do it. And that's how God set it up, friends. And so the continental divide is real simple. Any measure of self-dependence puts you on the wrong side, and that's why you struggle. That's why there's not a lot of pessimism, a lot of discouragement, a lot of what's going on. And you know what happens when people get on the wrong side of the continental divide? Every once in a while, they get totally desperate, and they trust God to do it, and guess what? He does it. But many times, I don't know about you, we are so dense, we default back to self-dependence. And we go back to the other side. So um, Getting out of the boat, you say, well, preacher, I, I don't know about that getting out of the boat because you didn't finish the story because, you know, good old Peter, he took a few steps and then all of a sudden he got distracted, wind and the waves, and man, down he goes and that's going to happen to me. Can I tell you right now that if you get out of the boat, it's a, not a matter of if you will sink, it's a matter of when. You say, oh, well, thanks, preacher, for letting me off the hook because I'm not getting out of the boat if I'm going to sink. No, you're going to sink. But I will tell you this, you better finish the story. We talk about finishing the story. So Peter starts sinking and what did he do? Drown? He 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 prayed what I call a flare prayer. You guys know what flare prayers are. Here's what he's what he did not do. He did not say, "Dear heavenly Father, thank you for this blah 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 blah." Yeah. Lord help. Yeah, he just had three words. "Lord, save me." Now, this is going to shock you. Do you know what Jesus did? He saved him. Isn't that amazing? Now, think about this for a moment. Do you remember back that you heard this terminology? Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal... Savior. Could I change that without changing it? Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal EMT. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal fireman. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal lifeguard. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal rescue worker. Did you know every single word I just used was a synonym of Savior <laughs> See, a Savior is a rescuer. Now, don't miss this. I'm not trying to diminish it all. I don't want to, I'm want i trying to keep this reverent. But here's the point I want you to understand. When you got saved, Jesus' rescue work didn't stop. It started. Amen. The first thing he did was rescue you from the penalty of sin. But the rest of your Christian life, he wants to rescue you from the power of sin. Amen. Now, I don't know about you. I keep my rescue worker really busy. Some of you are a whole lot better Christians than I am, and you don't keep them real busy, but I keep them real busy. Just ask my wife. You know what I'm talking about? We talked about the other day, moment by moment. A Christian life where we need God all the time. I don't know about you, I need God all the time. I can't do this without Him. And the great thing is, He's just waiting for us to come to the end of ourselves and say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. And then, if you don't get out of the boat, you know what the Bible says? Faith without works is dead. So God is saying, you can believe it all, but you've got to believe me enough to obey me in dependence on my strength, not yours. Amen. That's when you walk on water. Amen. You know what I'm going to tell your teenagers tomorrow morning? Somehow, some way, someway, whatever message the Lord leads, is Jesus can enable you to do what you never thought you could do. If you just believe him enough to obey him. Amen. And that's when God intervenes. That's the 0-100. 0% my will, 100% his. 0% my strength, 100% his. That's when God steps down. And you know what I've learned looking back over 35 years of ministry? God has been trying to teach me that over and over again. But I don't know about you. I'm pretty thick-skulled. It takes me a while to get it. And I'm not sure I still do. But I at least get it enough to articulate it. Now I'm trying to work on living that way. (laughs) But I remember... When God called me to preach. I was 16 years old, sitting in the auditorium. I knew God had called me to preach. That's not the night I should say I was called. That was the night I yielded. I I think since I even as a kid, I knew deep down that's what God wanted me to do. But that 16th year, in the month of, I believe it was May or June, at the end of a school year, my dad was preaching that service in an auditorium probably a little bit smaller than this, but pretty close. There were pews except Tilted, they were turned literally perpendicular. I was seated on this side. I don't remember a word my dad preached because I was wrestling with God. You ever wrestled with God like that? Boy, my dad finished that message. I gave the invitation. I made a beeline off that. I, I couldn't stand it any longer. I grabbed my dad's hand. I said, "Dad, I think God's calling me to preach." I will never forget what my dad said. Never. He said, "Jim, your mother and I have known it for a long time. We've been praying for you." Absolutely shocked me. Now here's the thing I want you to understand. When I was in high school, I was extremely shy. Now, they say there's three kinds of people. you got extroverts. You guys know what an extrovert is. You know, if I ask tonight how many of you are extroverts, here's the extrovert. Ooh, 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 me. You know what I'm talking about? Extrovert. That's not me, but there's a slice of the world. I've never met a stranger, and I I can't relate with people like that. I think they came from a different planet. But um, there's extroverts. Then somewhere in between, there's ambiverts. You know, they're kind of balanced people, not extroverts. That's not, the large majority of the population are ambiverts. If I were to ask how many of you ambiverts, you know, just something like that. And then introverts. If I were to ask the introverts, hey, how many of you introverts? You're not raising your hand. No way, man. You're not living. I mean, you're, you're not doing it. That's just not an introvert. That's what introverts don't do. We love anonymity. We avoid churches where they call you out and make you stand when well, you're a visitor. You know, I'm just decent, but introverts. But many of you can relate with that. You say, yeah, that's me. I mean, that was me. I remember in sophomore year, something terrible happened. My uncle was preaching, was paraplegic, preaching from his wheelchair. And 250 kids in the student body, 7th to 12th. And, and my uncle's preaching along. He stops and he says, Jimmy, that's what they called me back then. Why don't you stand and read some, such a passage of scripture? I will never forget that moment. It's like this huge apple came out of nowhere. Where'd that come from? I could feel the temperature. You know what I'm talking about? I could feel. All you blonde-haired people know what I'm talking about. Just. I could feel the red coming up like that. I remember sweat beating up on my forehead. And I thought to myself, this is terrible. And I found the passage. I stood up and, you know, you open your mouth and your first syllable is about an octave higher than you normally are, you know. Just horrendous. I remember choking out those verses. I remember sitting down, folding my Bible, folding my arms, and I thought that is the worst thing that could ever have happened. God has a sense of humor. He called me to preach. (laughs) I knew it. I just knew it, but I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't do it, but I I knew he was calling me. So I came and said that. You say, preacher, was there a burden lifted? Was there joy in your heart? No, it's miserable. How would you like to publicly yield to do something you know you can't do? I didn't know what I'm, pre- what I'm preaching to you. I didn't know that. I can tell you, I remember going to the lobby. It's like it happened yesterday. And I remember thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do? Okay, I got a freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, of college. And then I'll graduate. And I got my senior year of high school. So I got five more years. Maybe something will happen. Maybe I'll get hit by lightning. <laughs> you know, I'll change, alter the chemistry. You know, something. Maybe, I'm, honestly, I, I, I thought this, I was miserable. But I had made a decision. I thought, well, if it kills me, we'll die in the attempt. Let's go for it. So I set my face toward preaching, but absolutely miserable because I didn't think I could do it. So um, I thought I got five years before I have to preach, but my dad, he believed that if you're called to preach, you did it. In other words, do it right away. Probably like your preacher believes. And, and so uh, my dad comes to me shortly after that. Oh, Jim, there's a preacher. There's a church over here. The pastor's going to be out of town. And, and he called me up, and, and I'm going to send you over there to preach Sunday morning service. And I'm sure, pretty sure what happened. People called my dad all the time, uh, and they said, uh, and probably called up and said, Pastor, do you have one of your staff members you can send over Sunday morning? I'm going to be out of town. And my dad probably, oh, my 16-year-old son, Jim, called to preach. I'll send him over there. I'm sure the guy thought, oh, why did I call? So I remember my dad, uh, you know, drew me out a, a map, hand-drawn map. I think we don't have any millennials in here. We got a few, so you used to have maps that were hand-drawn. I know that's a shock to some of you. And had a little hand-drawn map, and, and I got in the car, and my dad didn't even go with me. I know now, looking back, what he was doing. He just acted like no big deal. You can do this. I remember I had a sorry-looking outline, you know, I got in there scared half to death, 16-year-old kid with my patent leather shoes, you know. Remember patent leather anyway. And uh, I, I remember uh, I drove over to that church, and man, it was an old church in Oak Park, Illinois. You know, it had stained glass windows, and just look old. Man, I walked in that church, I thought I'd walked into a nursing home. You know, I'm talking about, no offense, senior citizens, no offense. But, I I mean, when you're 16, I mean, anybody over 40's got one foot in the grave and slipping fast, you know. I thought these people are old. There were no teenagers, no children. I'm thought, what am I going to preach on? Robbing Medicare, what am I going to preach on this morning, you know? I mean, you know, cheating on your income tax. I don't know, I don't preach on that kind of stuff. So I'm coming, I'm scared after death. I'm sitting on the front row trying to figure, what can I preach to these people? And I'm telling you, friends, no offense, you folks have exciting services here, but man alive, I'm telling you, the singing was slow. To be honest with you, it kind of, kind of felt like a funeral. I thought maybe some of them were practicing. You know what I'm talking about? I didn't think it was going to be long. Now, this is 16. You have to understand when you're 16, you think things you shouldn't. You know what I'm talking about? I'm just being honest with you. I'm 16 years old. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? So the, the guy, the deacon in charge or whoever he was, you know, says, okay, here, Jim Van Gelderen uh, is going to come and preach. And I don't know. I got up there, opened my Bible, put that sorry outline up there. And I'm telling you, I plowed through it. I figure I'm going to finish it. 25, maybe 30 minutes, just plowed right through the thing. I'm sure bored those dear people to tears. You say, how can you be sure? Well, my theory is this. If you're bored preaching, they're probably bored listening. What do you think about that? <laughs> I'm up here thinking, when's this guy going to be done? You know what I'm talking about? I'm sure they're thinking the same. Now, when I finished that message, I am telling you, I was horrified. There's one problem with going up in a church where you have good preaching. is you know what, good preaching is not. And I thought that was terrible. I think I would have left out the back, except I'm a preacher's kid. Can't do that. I know protocol. You've got to stand at the door, have everybody come by, shake your hand, and lie to you. <laughs> see, I know protocol, you know. So I, that's it. Preacher's kid. You see a little cynicism coming out of here, please pardon it. But anyway, and so um, I uh, I finished it and knew exactly what I had to do. I stood by that door, horrified. And wouldn't you know it, it was bad. Dear again, senior citizens, please don't be offended by this, but dear old ladies would come by, they'd pat my hand. Oh, Sonny, that was a wonderful, wonderful message. I'm thinking, Now again, get, I'm 16, this is my 16-year-old mind. I'm thinking, your hearing aid's not even turned on. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking on, you know, pat my hand, you know. I'm thinking, this is bad. So everybody leaves. I'm sitting here thinking, oh, this is terrible. I'm about to, you know, get in the car and leave when the treasurer, he was the guy in his 40s. He was the young guy and he comes over and he pulls an envelope out of his coat. And he says, Brother Van Gilden, here's your honorarium. At that moment, was the first moment I even realized I was going to get money for this. I wouldn't have paid plug nickel for that message. It was so bad. I was so embarrassed. I really wanted to give it back. And I'm telling you the honest truth, but I'm a preacher kid. I know protocol. You can't do that. So I took it, walked out of the car and opened it up. And it was such an amazing amount of money. I was stunned. You say, how much? Fifty dollars. You say, "Well, you know, fifty dollars isn't that much, preacher." Nineteen seventy-six, pre Jimmy Carter, money, big money. Oh, okay, you remember what fifty bucks used to do? I tell teenagers they're shocked when I tell them: fill your gas tank up ten times. You remember that? You can go to McDonald's fifty times in those days on fifty bucks, get a hamburger, French fries, and a large Coke. I remember the commercial. Okay, but anyway, so the point was. I drove home, and the whole way home, I'm thinking, God, I thought I was supposed to like it. I did not like that. That was my beginning. Now, I pressed on because I knew God would call me, but I didn't. It was kind of of tough. Well, I went off to college, and thank the Lord, college began to help me, and there were some opportunities, and certainly I saw some deliverance and some blessing, and there was a move forward. But I'll never forget what happened the summer after my freshman year. One day, my dad gets up and said, Now, my son Jim is going to go back to college on such such a date. And the Sunday before, he's going to preach on Sunday night. He said, I want everybody to be here. You, 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 most of you didn't know my dad. But my dad, we could just plug something like, you know, nobody's business. and And, that's, and, and so he said, I want everybody here. So I was a little bit more excited this time, and I started to prepare. I got a burden for our people, and, and uh, at the same time, I didn't know how to prepare a message. I hadn't taken any courses on it, and it was pretty surfacey stuff, but I'm preparing a message. And then that Sunday comes, and I remember my dad that Sunday morning, and how oh, everybody needs to be here tonight, and all that kind of thing. and So we go home, we eat the meal, and, and uh, I say to the family, I got the basement. Nobody bothered me. I got the basement. Well, I went down in that basement. It's about probably 1.32 o'clock. And I will tell you, I spent three hours, and it wasn't a sophisticated prayer meeting. I spent three hours saying, God, you've got to do something. God, where are you? God, I can't do this. God, don't you know I can't? I pled with God for three hours. You say, why didn't you work on your outline? The outline was on life support. Three hours would not have resuscitated. it. <laughs> I knew that if God didn't show up, I was done man, I played with God for those three. Finally, about five-something, somebody yells, hey, Jimmy, time to go. I remember walking up the wooden stairs of that basement. I've never been executed, but I'm convinced I know what it feels like. (laughs) I'm going up there thinking this is terrible. I remember getting in the car a whole way over. I'm saying, God, can't you do something? God, don't you know I can't do this alone? I I absolutely was convinced of two things. I could not do it. And number two, if God didn't intervene, I was done. I remember coming over there and and the service was at 6, and somehow I ended up getting on the platform. My dad was sitting in one spot. I was sitting in the other spot. I looked out, and the place is jammed. <laughs> Not a seat open. That time, our church would probably run 5, 600 on a Sunday night, and I'm telling you, it was jammed. And I'm telling you, everybody came to see the preacher's kid go down in flames. I mean, they're all there, man. Don't want to miss this, you know. I'm just now thinking, God, I can't. Oh, this is terrible. These are people I know. I've known them since I was six, many many of them since I was six years old when my dad came to that church. I'm on the platform pleading with, God, God, you got to do something. My dad comes, introduces me. I'll never forget walking to that pulpit. God, here it is. God, you got to do something. Open up my Bible, put that outline on this side, put both my hands on this side. That's how my dad did. In fact, the marks were right there. I put them right there where his marks were, you know. That's how he preached. He didn't move. And I started preaching. And I don't know how to explain it, friend, but any preacher in this room knows what I'm talking about. All of a sudden, I realized I am not in this pulpit alone. Amen. And I don't know how to explain it, friend. I was free. Amen. Amen. I remember moving over to this side. looked like a bunch of sinners on this side, kind of like tonight. But anyway, it looked like a bunch of sinners out here. Man, I started preaching, going after it. And I remember saying things and thinking, whoa, that was really good. Where did that come from? That was really good. Got to remember that next time. Come on over to this side. Same thing, man. Start preaching over on this side. I preached for 45 minutes. I'm going to get honest with you. I loved every minute of it. But I'll tell you, I finished that message. I gave an invitation, and what happened next probably changed my life. People I've known most of my life come streaming down the aisle. Someone with tears dripping down their face. The altar was packed. And I will tell you, friend, I wish I could tell you that that night I learned a truth that I never had to relearn, but that would not be telling the truth. You know what God was trying to teach me? Zero, 100. I will tell you, friend, I, I knew it that night, but we just so default back to self-dependence and so many times over the years. It's taken me really decades to, okay, now I think I'm understanding it. Now I'm still working on implementing it like I believe many of us are. But you know what God was trying to say, son? It's zero, 100. I believe with all my heart we can see this nation reached Amen. if we start to live 0-100. Because then every day becomes a new possibility of the supernatural. Because we're not talking about us anymore. Amen. We're talking about a God who enables us to walk on water. Amen. My friend, no matter how old you are, how young you are, God wants you to walk on water tonight, Amen. tomorrow morning. He wants Amen. you to walk on water all day tomorrow. Amen. The only way you can do it is to live Zero, 100. Zero percent my will, 100 percent his. Zero percent my strength, 100 percent his. Amen. Wherefore I labor, striving according to his working, Amen. which worketh in me mightily. Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye?